song, G. And of course, the truth is, you don't really get the gospel till you understand you need the gospel. Who am I? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tonight, our text is 16 through 20 is a focal text, but I'm going to kind of bounce down through the text. I encourage you to stand in God's honor and to read aloud. I'll be reading 16 through 20 of 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred. And you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that as we come to you humbly and with honesty, we find a God who receives us and is a foundation of hope and life. And pray tonight as we look at the power of authenticity, of making the main thing the main thing and looking at your truth. And um, as has been said so many times that we major on the majors and not major on the minor and minor on the majors. So, Father, I just pray you guide us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There is a definite need for authenticity. We have a job for the Great Commission. We have a job to take forward the Great Commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And uh, the, as has been said, the Great Commission plus the Great Commandment equals a great church. And that comes when we're honest and humble before God. And the question we've heard, and it's a question that really makes you think, if I was on trial in a courtroom for my faith, would there be enough evidence to prove that I was a Christian, that I am a believer? And Paul is talking to these believers at Corinth, and he's getting to the heart of authenticity. And, and let's just march down through here, um, through the chapter, as we get to our focal text. He, he starts out, and he says, brothers, and of course sisters as well, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants, in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. So he says, he's saying, guys, you guys are so immature. You are so childish in the faith. How can we expect to carry on the great commandment and the great commission of Christ when you guys are such babies in the faith? So immature. And he goes on to describe that immaturity. Look at the picture here. He he says, For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? In the body of Christ, they will know we belong to Him by the way we love each other. 
And in a body of believers where there's jealousy, I could just be like that guy. Or if he just shut up and notice me, look at me. You know, that kind of stuff. And quarreling and disagreements. It's immature. He goes on. He says, for when one says, once, are you not acting like mere men? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus. Are you not mere men? What after all is Apollos? What's Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. He goes on and says, some plant the seed and some water, but it's God that brings forth the growth that we're in this together. He's saying, we don't want this immaturity of, well, I watch this preacher on TV, and he's the preacher that has all the truth. If you listen to another preacher, you're just missing it. He's the one preacher. There are those that, well, it's Paul. It's, it's Apollos. No, it's Peter. No, it's Christ. It's not any one human teacher. We're all gifted of God to serve him, but it's always Jesus. When we're looking in other places besides Christ, it's immaturity. And, and it leads to problems in the body of Christ. Um, he goes on here and he says in verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And so our charge is that we belong to God. And we are His building. We are here for His purpose. And, and he gets right to the the root of authenticity of the gospel. And look at verse 10 here. He says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. And he talks about what's built. But he says first, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid which is Jesus Christ. And I have to stop there. Whenever the church, any church, moves away from the foundation, look out. There's trouble. There's a loss of power. There's a loss of meaning. There's a loss of purpose. There's a loss of the faith. Because there's only one foundation, and it's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Jesus should always be the sweetest name I know. And when we come together, if there's no Jesus in what you hear, then we didn't meet with God. He goes on and he talks about if any man builds on this foundation, builds on Jesus, and he talks about gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hair, straw. His work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the work will test the quality of each man's work. He says the foundation is Christ. Once that foundation is laid, then we live. And how we live upon that foundation will determine what we work with. The, 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 the materials that are used. And this next verse is important. Uh, well, they're all important. Rather. He says... Um, if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. 
So I, I bring all that background as we get to our main uh, focal text tonight to say Jesus is the foundation. Whatever does not glorify Christ, whatever is not built upon the foundation of Christ, man, it's just going to be burned away. It's not going to be lasting. But if I have Jesus, that's what's getting me there. Not those works. Not what I've accomplished. Not what I think is great. But it's Christ. And then he goes on, as we look in our text here. Um, I want you to first say God is real. Verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit lives in you? God is real. And he's not merely real in this place. I love that sign. I know I refer to it quite a bit that we have as you drive up the drive coming into church. where It says, welcome to the meeting place of Kingsway Baptist Church. This is where we meet, but this is not where we stay. This is where God is, but this is not the only place he lives. He lives in you. You see, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, they would build this place to meet God, this temple that they would gather to, and there dwelt the presence of God. But the Scripture proclaims that under the New Covenant, that through the work of Jesus Christ, who died on that old rugged cross, he was crucified, he was buried, he was raised from the dead, he sits at the right hand of the Father, and His very presence, His very Spirit comes to live within the one who trusts Him as Savior. Who asked for that new beginning. So God lives in you. And He lives in me. And, and that's what He says in verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's Spirit lives in you. Why shouldn't we know? But think about it. We need to stop. Quite frequently we ought to say, God lives in me. Have I thought about the fact that God lives in me? That God is in me? That his home is in my heart? How am I treating his house? How am I treating the place of which he inhabits? Which is his people. In the movie Jurassic Park, there's a scene. These scientists, they have cloned dinosaurs. And you know, they've talked all this about dinosaurs. But there's a scene where there's this incredibly large, frightening dinosaur that the scientist comes in confrontation with. And he falls to his knees. Why? Because it's one thing to talk about dinosaurs and what they were like. It was something else to see this dinosaur with these big teeth right in front of him. Which dropped him right to his knee. It's one thing to talk about God. It's something else to realize he lives in you. And, and, and that's the fact of his presence um, that is discussed here and, and that is so critical for us to get. He doesn't sit here all week and wait for us to come. He lives in us and he moves through us. The places where we work, the places that we go, the relationships that we have. God in us moves and that's how he works as we become his light, as we become the salt of Christ as he works. And I want you to notice in verse 17 how precious his church is. Um, let me say a word about this too. It's interesting here. Notice here in verse 16, it shows us the 
that the plural and then at the end of 16, the singular. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? So there's a picture here of singular that in each one of us individually, the spirit of God lives. But there's also a picture that in us together, as God has pieced us together, the spirit of God lives and our passion and what should drive us is, as Thomas was saying, that we want the king's way at king's way. That we want that to be obvious that God's here in me and he's in you and he's in us. And that's precious to God. Look at verse 17. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple's sacred. And you are that temple. Oh, there are... Some who say, well, he must be referring to unbelievers, those who attack the church. Yet, if you look at this section of Scripture, it's not addressed to those outside the church. It's addressed to us who inhabit the church, in which the Spirit of God inhabits. So, in other words, what he's saying is, it's a bad thing to be in the body of Christ and tear the body of Christ apart. And we've all seen it. It's so heartbreaking. Where there have been those in the body of Christ that stir up trouble, that are mean, that hurt people. And that doesn't please God. It doesn't uplift God. And God takes it seriously because His people are precious. You are precious to God. We as a church family are precious to God. And we need to work as hard as we can toward Jesus together. Not that we don't have different ideas. Not that we don't have different gifts to have input. All that. That's not the point. The point is we need to guard that unity that points to Christ. He takes that very seriously. Alan Redpath, a British pastor, when he would talk to his people, he came up with an acronym called THINK. He said, guys, before you speak, always THINK. And each of those letters, of course, stood for a particular word that had meaning. T, think, is it true? Before you spread this, you know the old saying, is it good? Man, it's real good and I can't wait to tell somebody. No, it's not. I mean, is it true? It's so easy, I have found. You hear something and you think it's true. Then you find out too late it wasn't true. And now I've told ten people. No, is it true? Before you say it, check it out. Make sure it's true before you pass it on. H of the think, is it helpful? There are a lot of things we can say, but is it helpful? Or is it hurtful? Is it helpful? I, is it inspiring? May we inspire each other to serve Jesus and to spread his truth and his, his love and his comfort. Is it inspiring or is it a downer? Is it inspiring? In, is it necessary? How often do we put our tongues in gear and our brains in neutral? Um, I always think of a verse in Proverbs. It says, when words are many, sin is not absent. But he who holds his tongue is wise. The more words, the more chance some bad's coming out. And then K, is it kind? Is it kind? 
Is it kind? So T, um, is it true? H, is it helpful? I, is it inspiring? N, is it necessary? And K, is it kind? What great advice in building each other up through our the words that we speak that they may bring glory to Christ and with our hearts. Um, this next one here, uh, truth is not relative. Look at verses 18 and 19. Uh, he says, do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise... By the standards of this age, he should become a fool so he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. I'll just read verse 20. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. There are those that tell us, ah, your religion it's just like all religion. Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, it's all the same. You talk about God. No, it's not. The idea that all truth is true, you know, the whole relative thing. It's all relativism. No, it's true. Or is it not? I heard of. I've been listening some to this apologist, and um, Frank, Frank Turek. And uh, I heard him the other day. He was talking, but he goes into a lot of universities. And he said the question he asks unbelievers frequently is, if Christianity were true, would you believe it? And he said he was in a college recently, and there were a bunch of atheists around him. And he said, if Christianity were true, would you believe it? And they got angry. And one guy, such as mine, he said, no, I wouldn't. He said, well, let's just go get pizza because you're obviously not going to be honest. And the guy got kind of mad. And, and so Frank said, have you read the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? He said, no. He said, well, how can you say you don't believe Christianity when you haven't read the biography of the most influential person in the history of the world? How is that honest to seek the truth? How can you be wise if you haven't investigated the biographies of Jesus Christ before you make a verdict on Jesus. Is it, is it true? The truth of God is true. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And there is a reality that's different. Jesus died. I'll tell you what sticks out about Jesus. He's alive. They came looking for that body. And if there would have been a way to produce that body, you can bet it would have been produced. Because they wanted to shut up the word that Jesus was alive. But no matter how hard they looked, no matter how they searched, no matter how many lies that they shared, those disciples that were shaking on their knees, hiding, became bold. Why? Because they had seen the risen Christ Jesus and it changed them. And then they had a boldness that was more than what they could have. It came from God. Why? Because they had seen the truth. And hey, that's what this is about. It's about seeing the truth. That we in our sins, we can't get to God on our own strength and our own goodness. And so God came to us. And He died on that cross. And He was placed in the grave. And He was raised from the dead. 
And I love that verse in Romans 8, 11, I think it is. It says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. The resurrection power of God enters us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the truth of the gospel. John 3.16 and 17. Of course, most of us know 3.16 by heart. 3.17 is very powerful as well. Um, and then I be, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his begotten, only begotten son. That's his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What a great verse. But the next verse is also powerful. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through it. I love that. God's intention was never to condemn you and to condemn me. That wasn't his intention. That wasn't his heart. He sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He came to save us. I love uh, Luke nineteen ten, for he came to seek and save that which was lost. That was me and you at one time. And he made the difference as he came and he died for us. And when we trust him, he says that his spirit comes to dwell within us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit that he uses for his glory. Our wisdom, our understanding is not enough. We need God. No matter how smart we think we are, we're not smart enough. I remember hearing years ago, uh, Adrian Rogers saying that he went to visit this guy who had a very high IQ. And uh, he said the guy was obviously very, he knew a lot of facts. And the guy went on and on and on. He said, I, I just need to tell you up front, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. And so Adrian said, uh, you do know a lot. Would, would you say it's fair to say that you know half of everything there is in the world? The guy thought, yeah, that would be fair. Well, then let's just assume God's in the half you don't know. <laughs> I love that. You see, man's foolishness, as it says in Corinthians, man's wisdom is foolishness. And, and it says that to them, the message of the cross is foolishness to who? To those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, what is it? It's the power of God. Man, all the difference. I close with uh, this story. I had read years ago in a book called A Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, who was a writer um, for Chicago, a Chicago newspaper, I believe. And uh, he went on a search to disprove God. And, of course, it led him right to Jesus. And now he's an apologist, and he's written several books. But he, he one of the books he wrote is called A Case for Christ. And what he did, he went and he began interviewing different people um, and asking them these difficult questions about Christ. And one of his interviews dealt with uh, a man who was a good friend of Billy Graham. 
when Billy Graham was younger. Um, when Billy Graham was getting started uh, in being becoming known, he actually went over to Europe, and he and this guy, his name was Charles Templeton, they were roommates, and they would go and they would speak for Youth for Christ, and uh, they would share the gospel. And Charles Templeton was incredibly gifted. Matter of fact, many people were saying, he's going to be a famous evangelist. They didn't mention Billy at that that point like they did Charles Templeton. Man, he's really got it together. But after that tour, a mere two years later, Charles Templeton was already having some doubts about, is the Bible really true? And he ended up going to Princeton Theological Seminary. And just a couple of years after that, he said, I'm an agnostic. I don't even believe in God anymore. I don't think anyone can know God's real. And he had all these questions. And he, and he approached Billy Graham. And he said, Billy, I'm, I'm just having trouble. You know, this idea of, 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 you know, the world was made in six days. And, and he had all these questions about the Bible. And he says, how can you understand this? How can you believe it? And Billy said, I may not have all the answers, but I've had to come to a point to where I have to believe God is real. And I have to believe that the scripture is his word. And I have found that there is power in my preaching when I believe that his word is true. And when I simply tell the truth, not try to explain every detail of the truth, but to proclaim the truth. He said, Charles, that's what I have to do. He said, but that's like intellectual suicide. How can you do that? He said, because I had to come to that place, put my stake in the ground. God is real. And what he says is true. Well, sadly enough, years passed and Charles Templeton ended up leaving the faith altogether. And it's just so tragic. Um, But anyway, the whole point of this, as time went by, uh, Lee Strobel had one of his interviews in that book, A Case for Christ, was with Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton was in his early 80s. And uh, Lee wanted to know what he thought about Jesus after all this time. Now, I want to read to you. This is from that interview right out of that book, A Case for Christ. Um, Lee asked him, how do you assess this Jesus It seemed like the next logical question. I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if suddenly he felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was intrinsically the wisest person I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except this was a form of greatness? Lee writes, I was taken back. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes. 
He is the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, 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 he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited. There's no question he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Uh, But, oh, no, he said slowly, he's the most, he stopped, then started again. In my view, he declared, he's the most important human being who's ever existed. That's when... Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbled as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply, wiped away a tear. After a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively. Finally, quietly but adamantly, he insisted, enough of that. So close and yet so far. Jesus was more than the greatest mind. More than the greatest moral authority. He is the living resurrected Lord. He is the truth. He's the hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. That the spirit of God lives in each of us. We are his temples and together his temple. And Father, our wisdom is nothing compared to you. The very wisdom of God who chose to send his one and only son to die for sinners like us. To be placed in a grave that could not hold him. And as the resurrected Lord provided salvation and a rescue that we desperately needed. (laughs) What a wonderful truth, Lord. A truth that gives us something to live for and a comfort that we will die for. Father, I pray that you just stir our hearts that the message of Jesus might move in us and through us. That as we leave the building which now you inhabit as we are here, that you might enter Bristol and Johnson City and Kingsport and wherever we go this week that people may see Jesus alive and not just church people. Move among us, Lord. Have your way. As we sing, show us what we need to do. May we follow you. That's our goal, Lord. That's the challenge. As you lead, may we follow. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.